In this episode of The Interface, I talk with Tom Trinecki, Global Operations Director at Amphenol TCS in Nashua, New Hampshire. Tom has been with Amphenol for 14 years and with TCS for almost three years. We talk about the challenges of leading a global operations team where the majority of the manufacturing is not in Nashua and how different it is from his previous work at Amphenol Aerospace. We talk about his tremendous work in Sydney after the floods in 2006 and 2011, including being the program manager for the new Amphenol Aerospace facility. We talk about the vast differences between working in the defense and aerospace markets versus the commercial markets. And we discuss how he's combating the coronavirus effect on his operations in China. This is The Interface. You don't have to get into details, but um, is has this whole coronavirus thing been been a bit of a, a, a fun couple of weeks for you? It's certainly been a challenge. Yeah. Um, it doesn't help that it comes right on the heels of Chinese New Year. So oh, yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. It's always kind of an anxious time period for for us. It's almost like we pretend that it's not going to happen every year, and then it does. <laughs> um, so you try to plan as much as you can. It's kind of like here, kind of like here in Sydney during hunting season. Yeah, or you know when we used to shut the plating down, uh, plating building down every year. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't we didn't want to believe it was going to happen that year. Right, right. So it's been difficult, so, I'm sure. So as as global operations director for Amphenol TCS, how much of your day is spent working with people outside of Nashua? Probably. 85% of my time. Oh, really? That much? Yeah. Because yeah. how much How much of the manufacturing is done outside of there? 85%? 100%. Oh, 100%. <laughs> At least for my particular uh, business unit that I work in. So, so what's, what's your business unit? Uh, high-speed I.O. cables. And what are the other ones at TCS? Because I don't really know, to be honest with you. So the, the national campus is in... You know, is in my short time here, I've been able to pick up a little bit of, of the history, right? So, um, obviously, started out as Teradyne, and then uh, was a, you know acquired by Amphenol, and then SCI was acquired by Amphenol, and kind of rolled into this AICC larger group. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a mix of business units that operate out of Nashua, similar to to how Sydney operates. Um, so you have uh, people from the mezzanine group, mm-hmm. uh, the backplane group, backplane cables, um, the cable team that I work for. Uh, there's also a separate active optical cable team. So it's a it's a pretty good mix of you have subject matter experts in the engineering fields um, and then various management roles that kind of work with teams around the world so and yours is the high speed side of things correct how much was that to learn <laughs> i i think the first couple months was always a little crazy because you're used to you're used to knowing part numbers you're used to knowing um you know the lingo about the product and then you you have to kind of reset and relearn all that so i think that was the biggest biggest thing is really as soon as you can learn to speak the product and understand what it is and 
what people were looking for, um, that's particularly helpful. There's also three different manufacturing locations when I started. So you had to know whether that was built at one of two sites in China or in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So there was a couple different places to go. Is it still three or is it more facilities now? Uh, it's still three at the moment. Yeah, but that's still a lot of, lot to manage and, and to learn in an entirely new language, so to speak, with the, with the new part numbers. I'm sure it was difficult because you were here. You were here. I'm in Sydney, New York, but you worked here in Amphenol Aerospace for it was about 11 years, I think, um, and certainly institutionalized to a certain extent as far as the part numbering system and the products and, and how they're made. How drastically different was it to go to TCS then? Uh, I mean, was there any similarity whatsoever or was basically like starting from scratch as far as knowledge of, of the products? Uh, there are similar processes that are used. So um, there's certainly metal components that are die-casted or stamped. Um, there's plating across various components, but then there's other completely new portions where, um, you know, the business unit I work in uses a lot of PCBs. Mm-hmm. And we also have a cable division that actually engineers and manufactures cable from, uh, from the raw components. So that's another interesting level of our vertical integration. And so if you could describe your job, like what you do there in like 30 seconds or so, how would you describe what you do on a day-to-day or a month-to-month basis? Uh, so obviously there are the top-line P&L objectives to make sure that you're maintaining profitability. Um, there's the customer aspect across all the different factories. Some factories have specific products that are built for specific customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in other areas, you have some bandwidth where you can actually shift load across factories. Um, reporting up into our group is that separate wire division, which also has two different manufacturing facilities. And about 80% of their production actually comes from uh, the three factory three factories that manufacture the cable assemblies. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of reliance in between the sites uh, to make sure that everything runs smoothly and ultimately we're meeting the customer's needs. I would imagine that if that's not the biggest challenge, it's one of the biggest challenges is being uh, for you as the operations director for all this and to try to make things, make sure things are moving smoothly and on time and, and, and quality uh, parts at the same time is you're not at the facilities where the manufacturing is being done. How, how difficult is that for you? I mean, how much of a challenge is that for you? It was a big difference. Yeah. Um, you know, making the, the move from the military group to uh, AICC, that was one of the first things that really hit me is, you know, you come to work and you're pretty much strictly in an office environment and, when there is a problem, you can't just walk through the double doors out to the manufacturing floor and start talking to people about it. Right. Um, and then on top of that, you know, the, you're pretty much on opposite time zones. So unless you can anticipate some questions and send those out before you go to bed or have a quick call, there's also that time delay. So how often do you get to China uh, and Mexico, I guess, too? I try to do each site once a quarter. It's a lot of travel. (laughs) 
it gets easier once you get used to it. I can imagine that travel at first was probably tough, but you get used to it and then you get used to just the, the culture and all that. How much do you enjoy that? Do you, or do you get to enjoy it at all? Or is it pretty much just business when you go there? It's primarily business. I try to spend as much time as I can from morning till evening, you know, with the teams in the factories, because yeah. you are there for such a limited amount of time throughout the year. Yeah. Um, yeah. You want to maximize that. Sure. Yeah. And then also knowing, you know, when you are gone for those seven days, your, your wife's at home with two small kids and she's probably counting down until you get back to help. <laughs> so you've been there for what, like almost three years now, right? Close to it. That's right. Yeah. Wow. I don't believe it's been that long. And like I said, you were here in, in Amphenol Aerospace for about 11 years and you were here during some tumultuous times, not from a business standpoint, but certainly from a facility standpoint over the years. Uh, you were involved with a lot of the work um, post-floods, I guess is the best way to put it. I think both 2006 and 2011, is that correct? Yeah, I was uh, lucky enough to join about three months before the first one happened. Right. So, And I know you did a lot of work on the first one, but I know the second one then you really got intimately involved, not only in getting the the factory as it stood back together again, but also leading the the build of the new Amphenol facility that opened in 2014 here. That was a lot of work for you, and, and I know that personally. What was what was that like for you, though, as you went through that process? Because it's totally different than probably anything you'd ever done before. Well, it was a lot of fun. Um, you don't get that opportunity every day. So no. That was <laughs> no, you certainly a, don't, yeah a fun challenge um you know i think the coolest thing out of that whole project was that you watched a, a facility in a town with so many people that you know live within a pretty small perimeter of where the old factory was um and they got to see a new brand new facility go up so you know i think that was probably one of the the most rewarding things is you know, seeing the old plant filled with water twice, nothing really prepares you for that. So it's just nice to know that that Amphenol will have a footprint there uh, for years to come. Yeah, that was it is, you know, people who were here will certainly remember that. But people who weren't um, during those two times where we had a the facility here was I don't know, 675,000 square feet, I think, total, something like that. And we had four feet of river water flowing through that factory twice in five years. Um, and both times, you and many others um, helped get that back up and running within a matter of days. I mean, not, a full, not at full capacity, mind you, but up and running where we can start making parts again and, and cutting metal and, and, and so on and so forth. That, that I imagine, was probably one of the most stressful times that you've had here, if not the most stressful. Um, and it's not something we've talked about with a lot of people on this podcast yet, but that was, that was a pretty intense time. Um, I don't know how much it was for you, but I'm assuming it was. I think it was for you know, a lot of people, whether you were walking through the factory or you know, all the people trying to fix machines and... Um, you know, rehab the plating building and 
other areas of the plant, but teams that worked in customer service, marketing, you know, they were answering phone calls day and night on when we were going to get healthy. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't think anyone <laughs> walked out of that situation without having a, a much greater appreciation for um, being able to handle a stressful time. Yeah. And I think it really brings out the best in people. And sometimes you see, you know, who handles situations like that, pressure situations like that very well, and some people who don't. Uh, and I, I think we learned a lot about a lot of people and uh, during those situations. Good, bad, and indifferent, right? I mean, it was it was a pretty stressful time, but I know you were a large part of that. And then to help, like I said, to help lead the project to build this new building, um, I had to imagine it was pretty fun. What was the what was kind of the coolest or unique unique part about it, uh, or even the biggest challenge for you, having really never done anything like that before? What was it that was a, a challenge for you? I think the biggest challenge was you know working at Affinol, you have a lot of bandwidth to do some things at your own pace. Um, there were certain things in that project that you that you couldn't do at your own pace. Um, you know, we had to adhere to some some rules with uh, the DEC and some of the other government agencies that you wanted to move much more quickly because you knew that that old factory was still in harm's way. Um, so that was probably one of the, the toughest things for me to deal with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from the planning of the facility to getting all the inputs from the rest of the operations team on how to do the floor layouts, you know, that, that was all fun stuff. Yeah, I would imagine it's almost like a dream as an operations person, right? Where they say, okay, you have a blank canvas. Now, where do you want to put all of the stuff to help your processes run as smoothly and as efficiently as possible? Yeah, I think at first everyone was um, kind of thinking, well, are you serious? Should we really get this chance? <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. There were a couple of younger um, industrial engineers who were drawing all the layouts on CAD, and I, I'd imagine they went through about fifty or sixty revisions of those drawings. But it's it's turned out great, and I had to imagine that for you, uh, being here still at the time when when it opened was a tremendous sense of pride. How did you actually get into that job? How did you have that? I guess I'll call it a, a an auxiliary role, an ancillary role. Uh, and you couldn't quit your day job, so to speak, but you had to do that. How did you get involved in that? I think it was probably like most opportunities happen in Ethanol. It was just kind of a casual conversation and, um, you know, your your boss or someone else approaches you and says, hey, we'd, we'd like you to help us out with this. And it, it always sounds so simple. And then you kind of walk away and you think, well, yeah, that that's, that's going to be a pretty big deal. So, um, it was a lot of fun, you know. You, you get exposed to a lot of portions of the business that you never have the opportunity on a day-to-day basis. You get to learn about contracts and learn about funding and, um, you know, how quickly you should make massive payments out to contractors. And it's you learn a little bit in every step of the way. So, Do you get to do with any of the facilities there, do you have... Uh, have you had a chance to have any input into something similar? Maybe not, I know you're not going to, you haven't designed a, a factory from the ground up like you did here, but have you had a chance to 
make those same or similar types of modifications in some of the operations that you run now? There's been some minor uh, floor layout changes, mm -hmm. but we're primarily focused on just trying to continue the, the evolution of automation to our manufacturing process. So that's been one of our, our biggest focuses going forward is we have a lot of different manual steps in the, in the current process. Some are completely manual, some are involved semi-automation, mm -hmm. uh, but we're really trying to move that to the next level. So um, no major changes planned with building moves or, or anything like that yet, but um, just focusing on the process. What are some of the processes that you're looking to either semi-automate or automate more of in the near future? I mentioned to you that there's some pretty sophisticated cable that goes into uh, the cable assemblies that we ultimately manufacture. So if you were to kind of take a cross-section of those cables, you could see up to um, 16, you could see 24 individual wires, mm -hmm. uh, some going down to 32 wire gauge, which is, you know, quite, quite small. Yeah, yeah. So we're trying to get more efficient on how those wires are routed and mounted to all the printed circuit boards. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty tedious process to align all those wires individually and make sure that they're soldered correctly to the board. Um, and there's varying links and uh, strips and cuts that you need to make to the insulation. So it's pretty manual throughout those processes. And so trying to find a wide way to automate that would certainly be helpful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, that's just one of the major steps of the process. So. so we talked earlier about how you had spent some time in the military group, uh, 11 years at Amphenol Aerospace and understanding how the, the military business runs and the aerospace business to a certain extent as well. And then you moved to the AICC side of Amphenol, which is one of our major business units within the corporation very different because it's it's in the commercial world but just describe some of the differences between the military world of amao the military and aerospace side and the the aicc side of the business sure i i think one of the the biggest differences is just the expectation in terms of product turn time and then ultimately the lead times that you can deliver in our customers you know in many cases like us to enter into hub agreements and have stock on hand and work to forecast. And when we aren't in that type of scenario, it's not, it's not um, uncommon for us to be able to ship items in two to four weeks on a, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So the lead times are much quicker than at least we used to work with in the military world. Maybe they were, um, similar to kind of the distribution model that we had set up. I think one of the other key differences is obviously with the high tech companies, there's, there's lots of customers kind of pushing the envelope on designs there. So they, they tend to look at the common products that we've been supplying for the last five to 10 years. And they, they like to take those and, um, you know, run more data through them mm. or have a different type of, cable that uh, allows them a little more flexibility in the cabinet and 
that not only forces our engineers to to come up with a new design, but it also kind of pushes the design right back down to the the wire supplier, right? Which in our case is Spectrastrip, mm, um, okay. another Amphenol company. So I think that is a is one of the key differences that there's a lot more customers kind of pushing us to do different things in a much quicker fashion. Much more willing to take risks design-wise. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's certainly a challenge for the engineering folks too, because um, in a lot of those cases, they, they necessarily, they don't necessarily know what they want, um, but they know that they want it to be different than what they can get today. Uh, so you kind of have to help guide them in terms of specifications and, and really limits of, of what certain product types can do. Yeah, I mean, that's very different from the, the military world and the aerospace world, too. I think they're, they're similar in that respect in that they're very thorough, um, very detail-oriented, um, follow uh, specifications to the nth degree, dot every I, cross every T, and then go back to make sure that those dotted I's are, in fact, dotted and those cross T's are actually cross. I mean, yeah, it, it can sometimes take forever. Um, whereas I know in, in, in what it sounds like from, from your side now is that it's like, okay, yep, you, that was great. I got this great new product, but I'm already looking at to see what's next and how I can get smaller, faster, lighter, whatever it may be, um, in order to improve. Because like you said, the design cycle and really the, the product life cycle is much less as well. I mean, you design something for the military or for the aerospace world, it could last 20, 30, 40 years. That's not going to happen in the commercial world. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I could see where that's a challenge. So not only for the engineers, but it's got to be it's got to be as much of a challenge equally if not more so for you then because you have to be able to provide the manufacturing support for these as well. So that's got to be a challenge. Yeah, there's there's new machines and tooling that are required. Um, you know, obviously you have to kind of drive your supply base to constantly be working to the latest revisions and managing obsolescence. So it it may not move as at a, at a lightning pace, but um, at least in terms of what I was historically used to, it, it moves in a much quicker fashion. Yeah. No, I could see that being fun in a way, though, too. I mean, you certainly don't have time to sit around and and consider too much. You got to move, which sometimes I like that as well, or at least I would. Yeah, absolutely. You and I did our our graduate work together. Can you talk a little bit about what that meant to you and and how it's helped you out in your career? Sure. I, you know, I think that my undergrad, when I was going, the biggest goal for me was finish my undergrad so I can go get a real job. Yeah. Um, and then you start working and you realize that, you know, maybe you didn't take as much time to really think and absorb everything that the professors are really trying to communicate. So it was, it was a great time to take a step back and not have so much pressure in terms of, do you get a 90 or a 70 on that test? Mm -hmm. But rather, did you, you really listen to the, the information that they're trying to tell you and, and also learn from your peers in, in your classroom, right? Um, as you know, it was a much more open forum in, in the grad classes than you would do in your undergrad. So I think that was the biggest piece. You just, 
you get to learn from others. Um, you get to think a little bit more. And, you know, plus you were doing it on your own time uh, mm -hmm. while you had a family and a job. And so if you wanted to do it, it, it meant that you really saw a reason in spending the time there. So you've been so if in. You went back, yeah. If you went back to do another degree, yeah. what would you do? All right. So to be honest, it would probably be something more in the creative field um, is what I would do. But that's just because that's what I love to do and, and try to do on a day to day basis, not only here at work, but, you know, in my own personal life as well. I just love that stuff. So I'd probably go back for something like that. What would you do? I don't know. I often think that learning a little more in the human resources field uh, could never hurt anybody. Yeah. Um, you know, you spend so much of your time just interacting with people every day. Um, and I think I've had to rely more on phone conversations in the past three years than I probably ever did before. Right. Um, you know, it's harder to just go get data myself or um, go see the physical results. So I think if I had a, if I had to do it over, or I had to do it again. I, I might do a little bit of more education in that realm. Well, it's never too late, Tom, never too late. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe when we get past 2020. Here. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, so you've been in Nashua now for, like I said, almost three years. How, how much do you, how much do you enjoy being there? Well, new things are always fun. Um, not only work, but uh, personally. So yeah. I, you know, it's been nice to kind of head up to the, the North country a little bit. Um, obviously Boston's nearby. So that's a, that's a good time to hang with the family. And then, you know, pretty quick access to a really cold ocean when you want it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, listen, Tom, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, I really appreciate you doing this with me today. And um, I'm sure we'll talk soon, but all the best, man. All right. Thanks, Chris. I right. appreciate it. See ya.